So as Wade mentioned, we are starting uh, this month, the month of August, we will be going through a series called Simple, Not Easy. Uh, after that, we're going to be looking into the book of Ecclesiastes, going back to our regular rhythm of working through a book of the Bible. Uh, but every fall, we, we feel it's important to take some time, set some time aside to really go through who we are as a church, much like we just did with our family commitment there, reviewing that, but also going over some of the things we believe and the, the, what we might call the basics of the foundation of who we are as God's people, and particularly who we are as Missio Dei Peoria. And so that's what we're doing this month with Simple Not Easy. And, and the reason it's called that is because it's not rocket science, these things that we're, we're called to and we're calling you to along with us. Uh, it's not complicated, but it's very, very hard to walk in it. And when I say that, I don't want to give off the impression that we're saying, like, we're these Green Beret Christians, like, Man, we're, we're the hardcore church. Like, you can't cut it, you know, unless you're really, really on top of your game. That's not at all what I'm saying. What I'm saying is all these things that the scripture and that Jesus calls us to live out are impossible for any one of us to do in our own strength and in our own power. It is so hard. But as we know, Jesus said his yoke is easy, his burden is light because he also promised as he went back to be with the Father that he is with us always until he returns, meaning his spirit is here present with us. And in the power of his spirit, we can actually live this out in community with one another in submission to Jesus. And so what we'll be doing is going over the next four weeks. Uh, these, are, these are kind of the, the basic things we want to be formed by as Missio Dei. And this first week, we're looking at the Bible. We want to be formed by this, the scriptures, but looking at what this actually means and what it actually is and, and how we should actually read it. As I said, we're going to be looking at Ecclesiastes next month, and that can be a depressing book if you don't know how to read it. I mean, he just says over and over again how everything is meaningless. You ever feel that way? And so how do we read that? and actually make sense of life. Like, isn't this book supposed to tell us, like, what is the meaning to life? And then we're reading Ecclesiastes, it says everything is meaningless. What do we make of that? And so we want to start foundationally with, how do we read this book? How do we read the scripture? How do we come to it in order to actually form us in the best way possible? And so I just want to start with a few different ways that historically the church and, and I myself have been brought up to view the Bible or the scriptures. And I want to just ask from some of you, like, what happens when we look at it in this manner? And so what happens if you read the Bible as, and the first one is a rule book? And I really want to hear from some of you, what happens when we read the Bible as a list of do's and don'ts, as a rule book? Jeremy? Becomes impossible to live it out. Yeah. It's very daunting, right? That's a lot of pressure on yep. you to do all the right things all the time. David, you were saying something? I just started to be discouraging. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It's very discouraging. John? I'd say, like, in my worldly perspective, it seems like some of the rules just don't really make sense. Hmm. Why would that be rule? Yeah, why does Leviticus say you can't cut your hair? You just have to wait for it to fall out. <laughs> <laughs> That's the one you had in mind, That's right? Exactly you were thinking what you're that. Thinking, yeah. Right, okay. Yeah, it, it, a lot of the rules don't seem to make sense if it's just a rule book, right? 
And so there's, there's a lot of frustration that people get when they come to the Bible, when they come to the scriptures, as this is how I'm supposed to live my life. This is my roadmap or my compass to living the best way possible. And it can get very discouraging. What about this? What if we read the Bible as a collection of moral stories? What happens when we view the scripture as a collection of these stories? You got David and the Goliath, right? You got the moral there you could say is like, you know, just if, if you have enough courage, you can slay your giants, right? Or you got um, Jonah and the whale. Don't give up in the deepest, darkest moments of your life, right? You'll see the sun again. What happens when, when we start viewing all the scripture as moral stories, Steve? Uh, yeah. Yeah, if you didn't hear that, most of the heroes, quote unquote, in these moral stories are not real heroes at all. And yeah, exactly to your point, David made some pretty bad mistakes throughout his life. What about this? Oh, sorry, David, you had one. Hmm. Hmm. That's good. Yeah, I mean, the whole point of moral stories are how do you apply this to your life, right? And how often do we study the Bible as like, well, what's the application to my life? How do I apply this to my life? And I'm not saying that there's not ever application, but if that's the only way we approach the Bible, we might be missing out on something. Diana? That's great. That's great. Yeah, if it's a collection mm -hmm. of moral stories, and it's all these different stories that really have nothing to do with each other, and I can take and pick mm -hmm. the ones that I really want to apply to me right now. Mm -hmm. yeah. What about this last one? What if we approach the Bible as a bunch of inspirational sayings? And I love this one right here. This says, difficult roads lead to beautiful destinations. Doesn't that belong on your <laughs> Facebook or Instagram feed? with some kind of hashtag afterward, like difficult roads lead to beautiful destinations. Like that makes me feel warm and fuzzy inside when I'm on a difficult road. But if the Bible is just a list of inspirational sayings, then we gotta deal with this one. Psalm 137.9, blesses the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. <laughs> like no one's printing that on their mug. <laughs> What do we do when we get to those hard things in the scriptures if this is just a list of inspirational sayings, right? Right. And so we have these different ways of approaching the text. And I'm just going to be honest with you. There are many times, even when I know that's not the totality of what the scripture is, that I still approach it that way. And it can get very frustrating, very daunting. But what if there was another way that we could look at the scripture? Yeah. What if you read the scriptures like the, a man by the name of Badranath? who was a Hindu scholar 
who uh, had an encounter with a missionary by the name of Leslie Newbegin. And this Hindu scholar, well known throughout India for his teachings, when asked about the scriptures, said this, I can't understand why you missionaries present the Bible to us in India as another book of religion. It is not a book of religion. And anyway, we have plenty of books of religion in India already. We don't need any more. I find in your Bible a unique interpretation of universal history, the history of the whole creation and the history of the human race, and therefore a unique interpretation of the human person as a responsible actor in history. That is unique. There is nothing else in the whole religious literature of the world to put alongside of it. That has a lot more implication than moral stories or rules to follow or things that make you feel warm and fuzzy. Right? If, if it is the interpretation of the history of all creation, or as he says, the unique interpretation of the human person, that's you and I, then it starts to address a lot of these deeper questions that we have, doesn't it? It starts to address questions like I mentioned earlier when you're reading Ecclesiastes. What is the point then? What is the meaning? Like maybe it starts to address some of the more practical things too. Like who should I vote for in the upcoming elections? Or should we be building a wall to protect our borders? Or do black lives matter? Do blue lives matter? Should I be hashtagging all lives matter? What are the implications of those sayings? Should I be frustrated with someone when they hashtag the thing that I'm not hashtagging? Right? Or if you get even more nuclear into your own family, how should I raise and discipline my kids when they aren't doing what I'm expecting them to do? What types of school should I be looking to put them into? What type of church should our family be a part of? Should we be a part of a church at all? Does that even matter? Can't I faithfully follow the Lord apart from a church gathering? The big ones like, should I be paleo, keto, or Whole30? (laughs) Those types of questions and so many more. Here's one for you. I was just having a conversation with someone I love very dearly recently who's Walking through right now, his youngest daughter, his youngest daughter who has been taken advantage of by a grown man. And he's wrestling with, how can I believe and follow a God who would allow that to happen? These are the types of questions that start to make up who we are and how we live. How we answer those questions are vitally important. And if we're coming to God's word as a rule book of do's and don'ts, it doesn't offer a lot of hope to someone like that person I just had a conversation with. If it's a bunch of morals, moral stories of how you can learn and grow from and be a better person, it doesn't offer much hope. But maybe there's a better way. Maybe there's more hope actually found in this than the way that we've been approaching it. And I'm thinking through those questions that Chris is asking. And those are questions, probably as you're hearing them, you can think in your own mind right now, what, what's, what are the questions you're asking in your own life right now? And if the Bible 
is only a book of fanciful sayings, inspirational sayings, or a book of just moral stories, then the questions that really hit you deep uh, and, and centered really don't really get answered. And then you're left thinking, well, what is the purpose, the meaning of my life? Is there a purpose and a meaning even in my suffering? But if we see the Bible as the true story of the world, it changes everything because it is the story of history. It is the story of what gives meaning to our lives, to your life. And so that's where we're going to be taking it a little bit today of what does it mean to understand the true story of God. And if it is a true story, as N.T. Wright says, is that it's the true story of the world, it's public truth. If that's true, then it's a story that you just can't hear. It's a story that you actually have to live out. It's a story that God has written and is inviting you to inhabit, to embody in your own life, and to actually live as a part of it. This is the true story. Uh, from time to time, we will do liturgy taken from uh, the Reformed Church of America had created a document called Our World Belongs to God. We're not a part of that organization, but it's an amazing liturgy, book of liturgy that says what we believe as Christians. And I want to read what it says about the true story of God's word. It says that the Bible tells the story of God's mighty acts in the unfolding of covenant history. As one revelation in two testaments, old and new, the Bible reveals God's will and the sweep of God's redeeming work. Illumined and equipped by the Spirit, the disciples of Jesus hear God's word and do God's word, witnessing to the good news that our world belongs to God who loves it deeply. The true story of the world. And so, from time to time, we like to go through the true story, um, and we've created a, a way of understanding it and just as symbols that help us narrate the true story in our own lives and, and to others. And so, I want to bring that up again, and you've seen this before. Here are these six acts of God's true story. Um, I'm sure if I asked you to, you hopefully, uh, if you want to make your pastors proud, you would be able to recite all six of these, right? Um, and these are only signposts. These help us navigate and just give small glimpses of what God has done, is doing, and continues to do. And the true story of the world begins with this first symbol, this down arrow, as we, we know of as creation, And from the very beginning of Scripture, we read in Genesis 1.1, it says this, that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And as you go through chapter 1 of Genesis, in chapter 2, you see that here is a proclamation of who God is, who humankind is, and who the creation has been, or what creation has been created to be. This is the true story of the world, and it begins not with us, but with God. God who is eternal, infinite, 
never created, speaks into existence and creates the heavens and the earth. The idea here in Hebrew is that it means everything he has spoken into existence and created. And God, because he has created all things, sits as the king. Another way we can say act one here of the creation is that the kingdom has been created. The kingdom has been established. And God sits as the king over everything. He speaks things into existence. And if you go through Genesis 1, you start reading that all God created is what? Good. It's good. Well, that makes sense that the king of the world would create something that is good as an extension of who he is. Infinite goodness, infinite wisdom, infinite power and majesty and beauty. And then the highlight of his creation is humanity. Man and woman that he's made in his own image. If you look at verse 26 of chapter 1 of Genesis, this is what it says. Then God said, let us make man in our own image after our likeness. And the word likeness there is a metaphor that we are not like God. We just, there's a difference, definitely a difference. He is good, right, and perfect, the creator of all things. We are his creation. But still, there's a similarity that we have with God that unfolds here as this passage goes along. And it says, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. The king of all creation loved his creation and so much so that he creates man and woman in his likeness to be very similar to God in this primarily, that we share God's mission, that we are to go into all of the creation that he has created good to proclaim that God is the king, that he rules over all, and because he is good, right, and perfect, he is holy, that he deserves worship and glory and power and obedience from all of his creation. And so God creates man and women to be his, uh, his stewards, his under kings, to rule over all the non-human parts of creation. Not as authoritative, but in subjection to the true king and in love. Going into all the world, cultivating culture and showing the world what God is like in word and deed, in their language and in their life. And God loves his creation so, so much he doesn't just let him sit there and removes himself from it. But God is present with his creation. He's walking and he's talking with Adam and Eve whom he's created. 
And he loves him so much that he says, I'm going to give you myself, my very presence, and walk with me, talk with me, trust me. Everything I've given you, the food from all these trees and this amazing garden of Eden, my very presence, everything, my words to you, if you would trust me, you can live in the best possible life. God wanted them to be protected. He wanted them to draw near to him, to find in God alone their true satisfaction. That's good. That's how the true story of the world begins. And when God makes Adam and Eve, he looks at all of his creation afterwards and he says what? It is very good. And because God loves his creation so much, he wants to protect them and he says, if you want to live in the best possible way, you follow me and I have some rules for you. Not very many, not many at all, but will you trust me? And one of the ways that he does that is he puts two trees in the middle of the garden, as we know, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the tree of life, that they can eat from the tree of life freely. But he says to Adam and Eve, he said, it's the day that you eat of that fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. Don't do it. Do you trust me? Do you trust me? God loves his kids so much that he gives them the boundaries of what true good life looks like in his good creation. Oh, that we would be able to continue to read that story and it would go on joyfully from there, right? But as we know, we get to the second act of our true story, this X that we call rebellion or sometimes we call it fall but I like to see, say it in rebellion because there's rebellion in the kingdom. And God holding out to Adam and Eve saying, will you trust me enough to follow me and obey what I say in everything? We see in chapter three of Genesis that now this serpent, which is really mysterious, comes out of nowhere. Speaking, goes to Eve and said, did God really say that you can't eat from any tree of the garden? Well, we know that whole story and time doesn't allow us to rehash everything that transpires there. But here's the deal. The idea of the trees in the garden is this idea that Adam and Eve could be tempted with autonomy. This idea, will I trust you, God, or will I trust myself? Will I follow you as king or will I try to be my own king? And the serpent twists God's words and he tries to get Adam and Eve to believe that God's holding out on them, that God's totally screwed up this whole thing, that God's afraid that if Adam and Eve actually eat of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that they're gonna be just like God. And so Eve is tempted with that and sees that the fruit is delightful, pleasing to the eye. And you can imagine what she's probably thinking that whole time, and well, maybe God is holding out on me. Maybe what God has told me really isn't the best possible way to live this life. What if there's more? What if, what if there's really more life if I can become my own king? If I could rule my own kingdom? If I could be in charge of everything? I'm gonna take that fruit, and she eats. And Adam, as the scriptures say, who's standing right there next to her, she gives some to him and he takes and he eats as well. 
And the scriptures say that their eyes were open. They realized that they were naked. And for the first time, shame enters into humanity's life. Adam and Eve go and they hide from God. God never created them to hide from him. God created them to find refuge in Jesus and his presence. Well, thank goodness that the true story of the world doesn't stop there either. Because although Adam and Eve rebelled against God and didn't believe and instead trusted a lie, God, because he is the king and loves his creation so much, made a promise in that garden. A promise that was something like this, that there will come a day where the offspring of the woman will come and will strike the head of that wicked serpent. In other words, we see the very beginning of of the gospel, the good news, that a savior was coming into the world to make all things right. And God in his love clothes Adam and Eve. Because of their disobedience, he said, you will surely die. They don't die immediately, but they will soon. Physically, they will. Spiritually, they're now removed from God's presence as he sends them out of the garden never to return again. But still, God is faithful to his kids and to his creation. And so the third act of the true story, what we call promise, takes us all the way through the Old Testament where we see in Genesis chapter 12 that God now chooses a specific people. He chooses a man by the name of Abram who becomes Abraham. And he says, Abraham, through you and through your offspring, not only going to multiply you, but you are going to be a blessing to the entire world. In and through you, you will be blessed to be a blessing. And so God loving his creation, even though they've rebelled against him, keeps holding out his promise of saying, I will hold on to you as my people. You hold on to me as your God. And this is called a covenant, the deepest of all agreements, that God says, I will be faithful to be your God. You remain obedient to be my people. And we know the story. We've rehearsed it several times throughout the Old Testament. How well does Israel do with their end of the covenant? How faithful are they to God to remain obedient only to God as the true God? Not very well. There's periods of time where they do well, they're faithful, and then, hey, wait a minute. We're seeing all these other nations around us. I wonder what it would be like to live like them. I wonder what it would look like to live outside of God's good rule and to be my own king. And rebellion continues And Israel suffers so much so that they're exiled completely out of the land that God had promised to give them if they would remain obedient. And God still loves his kids. He sends prophets and he sends judges and he sends kings to Israel who remind Israel of who they are, that they are God's chosen people. They are a family of missionary servants chosen by God to demonstrate to the world what God is like. And still, we see in this story that Israel fails at their their vocational calling to be God's chosen people displaying to the world what he's like. 
And then we get to the end of the Old Testament, and we're wondering as Israel sits there in exile, the psalmist calling out, God, where are you? Why, have, why are you not around? We're, we're wondering, is that promise that God made all the way back in Genesis 3 still going to happen? Is God going to bring an answer to our sin and to the destruction that we see all around us? Let's pause right there, halfway through, and remind ourselves, as Wade said, these are, these are kind of signposts for us to remember how the story unfolds throughout Scripture. It's important that we know and understand how this story works and how it flows from beginning to end, um, but that doesn't replace reading this. And so I, I share that to say, uh, a couple years ago, I was sitting down with one of my neighbors at the time who was wanting to to seek God. And he said, we sat down at a village inn and he was telling me, somebody uh, told me I should start reading John. That's, that's a good place to start. I was like, yeah, that's a good book. He said, so I, I started reading John, but I just don't get it. <laughs> I don't understand any of it. And I said, it's a great, it's a great piece of scripture. Um, but unless you understand the whole story, it won't make sense. And so part of why we use these six symbols is the simplicity of explaining how this all unfolds as one story. And so what I did in five minutes is pulled out a napkin at the village in there and had some of my pie on it from where I wiped my face, but it was all right. And I wrote out the six symbols and I started explaining it to him. Uh, When I got to the third symbol where Wade just left off, uh, I stopped right there and I said, now all of this, this is the Old Testament. And I drew a line between the first three and the second set of three symbols. And I told him, so this is Old Testament. This is New Testament. He's like, okay, that makes sense. I said, but, and I erased the line. I said, but they're not two separate stories. This is all one story flowing together. There is, this is the continuation. The New Testament does not negate everything in the Old Testament. It's continuing the story. And that's why when we see in Matthew 5, in Jesus's very famous Sermon on the Mount, verse 17, he says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them. I have come to fulfill them. And when we read that out of context, we think, okay, Jesus has gotten away with all of the old laws in the Old Testament. That's why we don't have to cut our hair anymore. Or we, we are allowed to cut our hair now, right? Like, we don't have to listen to any of that anymore. But that's not what Jesus' hearers would have understood when he said that. What he was talking about and you'll notice in your text in the scripture that the law is capital L and prophets capital P. And what he's saying is the law, the Pentateuch of the Old Testament, the first five books, that story that's unfolding, I didn't come to get rid of that story. I came to be the fulfillment of that story. The prophets that have written about me coming and that are in your Old Testament, you see, they didn't call it Old Testament then. That was just their scriptures. He said, the law and the prophets, as you know, as as your book that has been guiding you, the story that you live in, I've come to be the culmination of that story, to be the fulfillment of the story, to be the climax of that story. Everything before this point was written about me, Jesus is saying, and everything coming after is because of me. And that's where we find ourselves in this fourth symbol here. And we've talked about the idea of drawing a little differently because it really includes the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But that's a complicated symbol, so we just drew a cross. Okay? But this is what this represents. Jesus breaking into our world. 
to fulfill this story for us, to complete this story for us. And so Jesus enters the scene, born just like a man, taking on the very nature of humanity, this humanity that once walked with God in that first symbol of creation, that had full communion with God, the presence of God there, relationship in its fullness with him. That humanity that then rebelled against God and withdrew, cut itself off from the presence of God in that second act of rebellion. That humanity that God then started pursuing ever since then all throughout in that third symbol. I will make this right. I will restore you back to me. Jesus is God himself breaking into that world, into that story, in the form of the humanity he created and loved and yet rebelled against him. And so Jesus comes and he starts painting a picture for us of what the true humanity was supposed to be. Humanity who loves and cares for all of creation. Humanity who is completely faithful to the words that God has spoken. Humanity who operates in the giftings and in the role that was given to humans. Not trying to usurp authority, not trying to gain autonomy or become king for himself. And so the, what's crazy about this is the very king himself taking on the form of humanity, someone underneath God, to show us what that's like. But it doesn't just stop there. Jesus didn't just come to show us how to live. He didn't just come to teach us the best way to be humans because we still can't do that. There's still this problem that happened earlier on in the story. Remember that man separated themselves from God and God said, if you do this, you will die. And so Jesus entering into humanity also enters into the brokenness, the sin, the filth, and the penalty for all of that, the death that happens to every single man, woman, and child that has ever walked or ever will walk this earth. Jesus enters into that. Jesus willingly makes himself a poor man with no place to lay his head. Jesus willingly puts himself at the ridicule of other people, of the religious leaders of his time. Jesus willingly serves and washes the dirty, nasty feet of people that won't even follow him the way they should. Jesus willingly goes to the most brutal, archaic murder that you or I could ever picture. And he does all this in the power of his spirit. And he does all this of his own admission. And he does all this for the love of his creation and for the glory of his father, God. And so Jesus takes on that death. And thank God, as Wade keeps saying, this story does not end there. Because not only does he pay that penalty of death that was promised to us if we walk away from God, but in the power of his Holy Spirit, the very one who gave life to begin with conquers death and regains life. Jesus passes through death for us, but he doesn't stay there. He does not stay dead. Paul writes, if, if he is still in the grave, then we're to be the most pitied of all people in this earth. But he did not stay dead. In the power of the Spirit, he rose again 
out of the grave physically in his body. This is key. It wasn't just a spirit that rose up into the clouds. Jesus' body, his physical fleshly body that walked this earth, got up and walked out of that tomb. This is why this is important. Because after that, he appears to his friends, his disciples, his family, and he starts explaining some of this to them. Not all, they still don't get a lot of it. But before he goes back to be with his father, this is what he leaves them with. In Matthew 28, you're well familiar with this, I hope, verses 18 through 20, Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He's saying, I am the king. You try to make yourselves king, I am the king. Go therefore, because I'm king, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son, that's him, and of the Holy Spirit who he rose from the grave by, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus was going to be with his Father for a time until he promised he would return again and come back with us. But what he's saying is, even during that time, I'm still with you always, even till I come back. And the reason why is because the same Holy Spirit that brought Jesus into this earth through a miraculous birth, the same Holy Spirit who walked with Jesus throughout his 33 years on this planet, who he relied on to abstain from temptation, to perform miracles, to heal the sick, to raise the dead from life, the same Holy Spirit who then brought his very bones and flesh out of the grave. Jesus gives to those who trust in him as a gift that we have the Holy Spirit within us now. And that's what moves us into our next act, that fifth circle there, that we're still moving forward. That's why it's a an arrow pointing forward, that there is still something coming in this story. God is still on his mission of setting all things right, and now we get to be a part of that. Not only have we been recipients of Jesus coming to make things right, if you have found life and salvation through Jesus Christ, you are a recipient of his mission of making all things right. You are now in right standing with God. But not only that, he gives you the power of his spirit to also join in his mission of making all things right. He calls you son, daughter of the father, brother, sister of Jesus himself, empowered by the same spirit to join in his work. And that's why we, the church, in that fifth symbol, are engaging in the mission of God. That's why we call ourselves Missio Dei. Because we believe wholeheartedly that in this story, we aren't just saved so that we can have our best life now. We aren't just saved so that we can have inspirational sayings that make us feel good. We aren't just saved so that God will bless us and we'll do better in our workplaces. But we are saved and brought into his family to join in the work that he has prepared beforehand for us to walk in, as Ephesians tells us. And so... Throughout the rest of the New Testament, we get this picture of the disciples of Jesus and the other disciples that they have now made, people they have taught about Jesus and his ways. We see them joining in that work. We see them sacrificing the things of the world that they once loved so that, so that they could love the world that Jesus did. 
sharing, showing, and telling who Jesus is and what he's about in the power of the Spirit. We see them making a lot of mistakes along the way too, just like we do now. But we see God at work through messy people. And that's a beautiful thing. Because what we also see and what we get a glimpse of through God-giving visions to some of his disciples written down in this text, we see them holding on to a hope that one day Jesus is returning. And it's the same hope that you and I have if you're in Jesus. That last final act is a down arrow again because Jesus, God himself, is coming back down to the earth he created, the earth he loves, the earth he's been on mission to restore. It is not blowing up and we're floating up playing clouds and diapers in the sky. God has been on a mission to redeem what is his. Sin doesn't win. Death doesn't win. And so just like at the beginning when God came down and walked this earth he created, this creation of his with his creatures, he will do that again one day. And all of those who have trusted in Jesus, who have joined in the work of his mission by the power of his Holy Spirit, by his grace will be walking with him. And what we see in Revelation 21 and 22 is this beautiful picture of a renewed, restored earth with a city where none of the sickness, death, lies, broken relationships, unpaid bills. My kids say, no more allergies. All that stuff will be gone. But we will be with God. He will be our light. He will have presence with us. And in the middle of the city, where there were once two trees that we talked about, there will be two trees again. But this time, instead of a tree of life, and a tree of knowledge of good and evil. One tree meant to test us. The two trees will both be a tree of life, where we can eat freely and we can live forever without the penalty of sin because Jesus has taken that for us. This is the story that we get to live in. The the six symbols are just a tool to help point us back to this to remind ourselves of who God is, what he has done in and G- through Jesus, who we are because of what he's done in Christ and how we get to live our lives. And so as we learn to inhabit or embody the true story of God, it's more than just memorizing six symbols and being able to write it down on a napkin full of pie crumbs, right? But it points us back to really knowing what God's word says. It's getting into this. It's memorizing it. It's meditating on it. It's asking God, let me know your true word. Let me see the the truth of your promises, your character. How great it is when you're thinking through those questions that Chris asked at the very beginning and you're thinking, how does knowing the Bible as a true story of history and so relevant to my life now, how how does that help me in my everyday life? I mean, let me just give you one example of that. And there are hundreds, but one example is that is when you are tempted to beat yourself up because you fail day in and day out. And you're tempted to give up because life just seems to make no sense. 
When you're tempted to rule in your authority instead of God's thinking that's going to be better, we remember the true story of what has happened. We know what happens when we try to live in our own authority, don't we? We see what it's done, not just to Adam and to Eve, but to all civilizations throughout history. How sin has hijacked God's good creation. We're reminded of that in the story. We see ourselves in here. But then we're also reminded that God loves his creation and he loves his kids so much that he sent a way for them to get out of their turmoil. He sent a way for them no longer to have to feel guilt and shame. He sent his son who took the guilt and the shame for us on the cross so that I could go back all the time to the story and remind myself that Jesus, the Savior King, gave his life, the righteous one, for me, the unrighteous one, so that I might become his righteousness, the righteousness of God. Right usefulness in my everyday life now. And there is hundreds of ways to see how the true story of God shapes us and speaks to everything you're doing. No, the scriptures may not say, I want you to take this job. Don't we wish sometimes it would? That would speak specifically to the exact thing, but here's the deal. We go back to God's word and we see very clearly that God is faithful to his kids and he does what is good, right, and perfect for his children. And that we will trust that because God is who he says he is and does all things well for those who love him, for his glory and their good, then we can trust that wherever God's leading us, whatever job that looks like, it's going to be where he wants us. And we're going to trust that through the power of prayer and his spirit, we can hear his guidance. As that song was in the chorus that we sang earlier, I'm trusting you for your guidance. Lead me. We go back to the word of God to see who God is like, what he has done, and how we can live our lives in light of that. And the question we just want to leave you with is where are you in this story? As we said at the very beginning, if this is the true story of the world, then it's a story that invites you into it, to inhabit it, and to live it out. Where do you find yourself in this story? Have you taken up the invitation to enter into this story to embrace the Savior King who gave his life for you and says, now in me you can have life and you can have it abundantly. And now because I love you and you have life, I empower you to live every day even in the midst of the craziness of those questions that are in your mind and in your heart, you get to go out in the power of Jesus And I am there with you. I am your rock. I am your refuge. Are you living in that story? Are you embracing the king who gives his life for you? I want to leave you with a little challenge as you leave today. I want you to think of maybe one of those questions that are wrestling in your mind right now. Maybe similar to what Chris said at the very beginning, something different. I want you to think of that question. Maybe there's many And then I want you to go home and ask yourself, how does God's true story address that question? If you need help with that, 
then I really encourage you to ask people maybe in your missional community or your DNA. Feel free to ask Chris and I. We'd love to help you be equipped to see how the good news of Jesus addresses those questions. That's the first part. The second part I want you to do is I want you to find somebody this week that you can tell the true story to. Maybe it does mean that you sit in the village inn and you sit down and you write those six symbols on the napkin and you get to share in five minutes or less the true story of the world. Maybe it's a longer conversation. But go and ask God to reveal to you, God, who do you want me to share the good news of Jesus with this week? We believe that this is public truth. This is the true story of the world. And we want to be sent out to invite people into God's story. Let's pray.